Amen. Thank you. And thank you to Ruth for sharing so beautifully. Um, I'm very aware that over the last few weeks, there's lots of new people coming around to us. And uh, it came to me in the worship. Uh, we came here nine years ago. And, and when Stephen and I came with our three kids, it was all skinny jeans and flat caps at the front. And we had a slight panic that we really weren't cool enough or hipster enough. Um, and then, but we judged on the outward. And then we caught the heart of this community and we couldn't leave. Um, and now it was hipster, it was sort of skinny jeans, flat caps and apple products was basically the kind of vibe here. Um, and then we caught the heart and there's nowhere else we'd rather be. And, and all these years later, you've an older lady with just her notes on a thing. <laughs> and definitely not skinny jeans. So, um, you know, the Lord does beautiful things in communities. So, um, I do sometimes have slides, but my IT expert is looking after his mother, so it didn't happen this week. So, uh, there we go. Last week, Dave spoke really beautifully on the, on the life of Moses. We're in this series of Steps of Faith, and he... I mean, there's so much in Moses, and, and my job today is David, and there's so much in these characters. But the thing that really impacted me last week, and if you weren't here, listen to the podcast, um, was about the burning bush, and the idea that every day we are surrounded by burning bushes. Every day we stand on holy ground, and, and that completely undid me last Sunday when I thought about it, because I thought... Do I keep alert every day to the burning bushes that are all around me? Do I, do I notice them? And more than that, do I respond to them? And that is the prayer of my heart in these days, that I continue to pay attention to the burning bushes and that we as a community pay attention to the sacred opportunities that are ours. Tuesday night with Ragda was a burning bush. It was holy ground, and it was beautiful. Um, and we are invited for more, and that excites me and thrills me and, and keeps me awake at night in the way that very little else would, because I do love my sleep. So, I want to talk today about David, and we're in this passage, as you know, in Hebrews. So, I'm just going to read you a little bit of it. It says at the beginning of chapter 11 in Hebrews, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For it, for by it, the people of old received their commendation. And we've been in this series looking at character after character from the Old Testament who has reminded us and pointed us to the acts of faith. And this morning, I am... The part that refers to David simply says in verse 32, What more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. So, that's all they said about David. They simply mentioned him as one of the, the significant prophets. And what I've learned is that ancient writers whenever there was a king, no matter what they did, they never wrote down the stories of the bad stuff. You only wrote good about the kings. And yet, if you study the Bible, this library of stories, 
the truth is told, the mess, the brokenness, the sin, and the, the restoration of kings. And that's why I love this book. It is simply a library of stories, but it's a beautiful library of stories because it engages us into what the story of God is all about. And so David got four books of the Bible. Nobody else did that in the Old Testament. He got first and second Psalms, first and second Kings. So there isn't a hope that I'm going to cover any of that worthy today. The only other person in the Bible who got four books was Jesus in the Gospels. So the stories of David point us to the future hopes of the messianic kingdom that was found and came to be in Jesus. It's impossible to teach on him in one morning, and I'm not even going to try. So I thought I would pick one theme of his life and offer it to us, and it's what has been on my heart this week, the wisdom that might be offered if we simply look at the life of David and the fear of the Lord. So that is where I want us to go this morning. So if we go back to where David talked about last week about Moses, Moses was commanding the rising kings of Israel to live in the fear of the Lord. He said it in Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 to 20. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and his statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." So that was what Moses said. He prophesied that the kings of Israel would always live in the fear of the Lord. And as we know, the first king was Saul. And for a period of his life, he did live in the fear of the Lord. And then he went his own way. And so God spoke to Samuel, a prophet, and sent him to Jesse and said, I want you to go and find the next king. And David was the second king of Israel who precluded or preluded the real king of Israel, who is Jesus. So he sends Samuel out to Jesse, and he's got seven boys, and he, he, Saul was a big, apparently a big, good-looking man, so they were looking for another kind of thing. You know, they were doing that thing that I did. They judged on the outward appearance. And so he lines up all his six boys. No, it's not him. No, not him, not him, not him, not him. And suddenly they go, oh, well, the only one that's left is that wee run to the litter, the late one, David. He's out with the sheep. And this wee 14-year-old is brought in from the sheep. And suddenly he is anointed. The spirit of the Lord falls on him. And he becomes known as the next king of Israel. But nobody else knows it. And so if you start to study the books of First and Second Samuel, they're absolutely incredible. The stories that are there, and I would encourage you to slowly read them this week because there's so much in them that I can't even begin to summarize. If we think of this idea we've been talking about at the steps of faith, this wee boy was 15 and he was a scrap and he was told to go and kill Goliath, who apparently was nine foot four. And... Um, he did it with one stone. He was offered armor by the king, by Saul, and he said, no, I will go in fear of the Lord. And he went and he brought down Goliath. We then 
Saul starts to get a bit jealous of him if you go into 1 Samuel 18. David is starting to win favor with the people. They say, to him, they say you've killed thousands, Saul, but actually, David, you've killed tens of thousands, and that's a good thing in that culture. So he's winning favor, and suddenly Saul gets jealous. If you want a sort of really good, you know, think of an exciting movie of the life of David, it would be amazing. He's killing loads of people, he's getting things, and suddenly this Saul is jealous of him. So for three years, he has to leave his house and his wife and his family and go and live in caves because he needs to stay safe in fear of his life. And in chapter 24 to 26 of 1 Samuel, he gets the chance to kill Saul. He gets the chance to make good and say, actually, I'm the king and no longer am I going to live in a cave in fear. He chooses not to because again he chooses his trust is in the Lord. And how many of us in life we constantly want to be in control. We constantly want to make it, things go our way instead of living in reverent fear of the one who is looking out for us. And so again and again and again, he, he chooses to trust God when it makes no human sense. And I thought about that this morning and I thought about people in the community who are holding on and waiting in faith for something. And they're not, they're not trying to sort it out themselves. They're just waiting. And I would encourage you that these stories are so beautiful to remind you of how people wait and wait and the Lord will have his way. After 1 Samuel 26, he becomes a king at Hebron. He does a brilliant job. He unites all the kingdoms and he becomes the king of Israel. He's established this kingdom. It seems to be going really well. He's got, as culturally was appropriate in those days, he has wives and concubines. He has all the women he wants, but it's not enough. He spots Bathsheba, who's bathing on the top floor of her house, and he thinks, that's the one for me. Even though I have four to five wives already, that's not enough. Sin gets into his life. How often does sex and money and power bring us down. How often? I know in my life, in the lives of many, that is what happens. He has an affair with Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant. So what does he do? Great idea. I'll murder her husband. He murders Uriah. Deceit, manipulation. So, if you, so then he goes on. He has children with his wives and his concubines. And the story almost gets worse and messy. One of his sons rapes his half-sister. Another son, Absalom, decides to avenge his sister and, rape and kills his brother. Absalom then returns to Jerusalem. He wins the hearts of Israel. He becomes the king. He's then killed, and David dies at the age of 70. If we look at the themes of David's life, there was humility and there was power. There was faith and there was repentance. There was also murder, sexual sin, adultery, generational mess. If we had a life like that in our, in our culture in these days, where there's incest, rape, murder, social services would be all over it. We would be in judgment. And yet this guy, because he kept returning to the Lord, he is 
quoted in Acts 2 as after the heart of God. And I mentioned the social services thing because sometimes we can have judgment on people and we forget that they are imago Dei. That if we actually lived in the fear of the Lord, we would see the Lord in everyone. And that the things that we perhaps have views on, we've no right to because we don't know how people are living. All we can do is serve them. So if you want a really good meaty story, get yourself stuck into the books of of the stories of David because they are fascinating and they are gritty. But what happens, even though sex and power and violence become the story of David's life, at the end of his life, he is a hero of the faith. And yet, as we know, a hero is rarely heroic but there's something about them. I love the Lutheran doctrine, simul justus et peccatori, that's the French, saint and sinner at the same time. And that is David, the story of David, the hero of the faith. He was a saint and he was a sinner all at the same time. Anyone who listens to me carefully knows that I love Nadia Boltzweber and she is a Lutheran. And she will describe herself as a 100% saint 100% sinner and 100% loved by God. And that is the invitation of this story. So I want to speak to how we choose to live in the fear of the Lord. It's mentioned 138 times in the Bible, so it's a very important theme. Frederick Buchner puts it very well in my view. He says, we all tend to make ourselves the center of our universe pushing away from our center everything that seems to impede its freewheeling. Bits and pieces go flying off until only the core is left, and eventually bits and pieces of the core itself go flying off, and in the end, nothing at all is left. So he would be suggesting that the only way to live full and free and healthy lives is to live God-centered and that is actually what fear of the Lord is, to live in a way that is God at our center and a healthy fear of him. So what I think we've done wrong when we've thought about the fear of the Lord and this is what I have realized is that I take it as two separate words. I take the word fear and the word Lord and then I put them together. So I've got to be fearful, afraid, scared. What Peterson would tell us is it is a phrase to be understood as one. It is a bound system. And so it's not really, it's a mystery. There's a mystery to it. It's not about human fear. It is about awe and wonder and respect. It is looking at Yahweh and seeing that God is good and God has good intentions for us and we are bound to him. That is what a healthy fear of the Lord looks like. For those of us who maybe have shied away from this idea of the fear of the Lord because we've lived with fathers who we were afraid of, and that's very common. That is very common. Or we've had no father. We don't understand what a father figure would be. But a fear of the Lord is... It takes me back to that beautiful image that I hold so dearly of the prodigal returning. 
He had every right to feel fearful and a little bit afraid. And what happened when he turned and headed towards his father? His father was doing what no one in that culture did. He lifted up his skirt tails and he ran towards him. So for that boy who had messed up royally, the welcome was huge. The welcome was saying, come home, my beloved. And that is what a healthy fear of the Lord is. So how do we live in it? I think it's a way of life that is responsible and responsive to the knowledge of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The more I read about it this week, the more I realized that scholars can struggle to describe it because there is actually a mystery to it. It is our awareness of the mystery of God and how we relate to him. How do we cultivate it? The main way is by prayer and worship and intimacy with God. So if we go back to that human idea of fear, we can't possibly be intimate with someone we're scared of. That just cannot happen. And so it's not our understanding of human fear. It is awe and wonder and mystery. We stand on holy ground, and when we really stand on holy ground, we don't have much to say. We wait in silence, and we embrace the mystery. Any of you who's ever held a newborn baby, I, I find I am speechless. It's the most close I can get to a sense of the, the beauty of the Lord. You see this little life come out of what you think is nothing. And they're just perfect and beautiful and priceless. And they just reduce me to tears and silence, which is not that often that that happens, but it does happen when I see a newborn baby because it reminds me of the bigger story that we're a part of. And so we become fused with God. It's hard to define it as a mystery, but if we spend time intentionally choosing to live in the fear of the Lord... It transforms not only our relationship with God, but our relationship with others. Because if I see God in you, and I have a healthy understanding of my awe and wonder of the Lord, I will have it for you. And so it is the most healthy template, I believe, for human relationships and human flourishing. How do we do it? Well, as I've said, worship, prayer, silence, and solitude are the key in my view. Eugene Peterson talks about three beautiful practices. Sabbath, where we learn from creation, that pattern of resting. In community, where we love and submit to others. And Eucharist and hospitality, where we, on a weekly basis in this community, we partake in a reminder of the brokenness of Jesus that invites us into death and then resurrection. Henry Nguyen, one of my favorite writers, one of the kind of spiritual directors I would consider in my life, he says, prayer is listening to the voice of the one who calls me beloved. So I want to just speak very briefly to those three ideas of Sabbath, of community, and then of Eucharist, which is what we will come to. Abraham Heschel, one of the writers, a very famous and valued Jewish writer, he says, six days a week we wrestle with the world, wringing a prophet from the earth, but on Sabbath 
we care for the seed of eternity planted in our souls. Again, I'm going to quote Nguyen. In general, we're very busy people. We've meetings to attend, visits to make, services to lead. Our calendars and our weeks are filled with engagements. Years are filled with plans and projects. There is seldom a period in which we do not know what to do and we move through life in such a distracted way that we do not even take the time to rest, pause, and to wonder if any of the things that we think, say, or do are worth thinking, saying, or doing. Sabbath and an utter 24 hours of pause allows us to spend time in the presence of one another, in the presence of the beloved, and to think and to reflect and to wait. And we cannot expect ourselves to live out of the f and flourish in life if we do not pause to rest and to spend time with him who loves us more than any others. In terms of community, I think it's important to practice the fear of the Lord by talking with each other, by submitting to each other, by owning our mess. Anyone who ever talks with me, and we talk about these things in leadership team where I say, if we've got something wrong, we need to own it. We need to own the mess. It's a kind of modern way of thinking about repentance and confession. It is very important. And we do that best when we do it in relationship with others. So if you are not in community with others, you are missing the opportunity to develop a healthy fear of the Lord. And I would encourage you to do that. And then every week we take this very practical example of Eucharist that reminds us that he spent his life for us and that when we imbibe the, the wine and the bread, we are again reminding ourselves of death of ourselves, resurrection of life. And also hospitality, opening our lives and our homes and our buildings and our bank accounts to others, accepting that we're just using, we just get it to flow out to others. That, I believe, is a healthy fear of the Lord. That, I believe, is the theme of David's life. He said at the very end of his life, in 2 Samuel, if you read the Psalms, he talks constantly about the fear of the Lord. But these are his last words. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in fear of the Lord, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Those are the words that he spoke after a life of humility, of power, of mess, of brokenness. And the thing about David, you will see throughout the story when you read it, that when prophets came to him and called him out with what he was doing wrong, he didn't defend, he didn't argue, he repented. And that, I believe, is why he was the one after God's heart, because he lived soft, he lived aware of his mess, he owned it, and he sought to come back to the center all the time. I want us now 
there's a beautiful practice that I think we've got out of the way of, which is confession and repentance. And it's been brought back to me uh, this week. I, I've soaked in this idea of how do I live in the fear of the Lord? And um, I found it humbling and beautiful and exciting. But I've also, I woke at half six this morning and I remembered something I had to repent of from very many years ago. It's got no relevance to any of you and it's not even appropriate to go into it. But at half six this morning, having soaked in the idea of the fear of the Lord, the first thing I woke up with was a memory of something that I thought, I need to own that mess and say sorry. And so I did. And I find that we've moved away as a culture from owning our mess and saying sorry or repenting. It's an old-fashioned idea for some of us who grew up in evangelicalism. It's maybe a trigger word, I don't know, but I am trying to embrace it again and realize that there is freedom in it, there is beauty in it, and that when we name it out, possibly just to God, it's over. That father is standing with his arms wide open, wanting you back and saying, come to me, my beloved. We will start again and again and again. So this morning, just as the band come, I want us just to, they're going to sing a song called Worthy of It All. And I want us to, I'm inviting you. It's your choice. <laughs> But as they sing it through once, I would like us to sit and ask the Lord to show us, is there anything today in my heart that I need to say sorry for? And if you have a relationship that you've messed up, maybe today's the day to start to repair. Who knows? But I think that there's beauty to be found in a healthy fear of the Lord. A fear of the Lord knowing that we are beloved and that he will always have his arms wide open to us, no matter what. And he simply invites us to keep returning. So now, just as, as the band maybe sing this over us once, I would like us just to sit, and if you're happy to, to pray, to open your hands, to open your heart, and say, Father, is there anything that this morning I can own and repent of and walk free from? And once they've sang it, once we will stand and we will sing and you come up here for those who are visitors, you come and take the bread and the wine and you take it back and then we'll pray. Is that a plan? Okay. <laughs>